0: Hello! Merry Christmas and happy holidays. It is the Witty Writer's Show Christmas special and we are so, so lucky today because we have got two of the most amazing literary agents in the business. We've got chairman of Trident Media Group and top literary agent Robert Gottlieb. Hello, Robert. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, darling. And I believe you're in somewhere very sunny right now. Yes, we're on vacation
1: actually. Oh, we're happy happy to join you.
0: Oh, well, I'm thrilled and honored to have you on the show, Robert, as always. And we've also got top literary agent Mark Gottlieb from Trident Media. Hello,
2: Mark. Hi, how are
0: you? I'm well. I'm well. I'm well. (laughs) I'm, I'm so thrilled to have you both on the show because you've come into the book world and the industry at very different eras. And Robert, I mean, you started in the book industry in 1977, and compared to what the big book world and the book business is like now, you have you must have seen massive, massive changes. What was it like for you when you first went into publishing?
1: Well, when I started in publishing uh, in the uh, uh, literary department to the William Morris Agency as an assistant uh it was a cottage industry it wasn't a corporate industry Uh, a lot of uh, decisions were made by the editorial department often without any input from sales or marketing because they viewed those departments as having to publish what they bought as opposed to them uh, uh, dictating uh, what editors could buy and that's the reverse case today. So uh, it was also, in my view, um, I, you know, I mean, as, you know, some of the differences are very, very uh, clear, and some are a little more gray. Uh, you had a, uh, you know, in traditional publishing, because there were no ebooks, you had uh, a lot of space for mid-list authors. Most authors were mid-list authors, and then uh, over the years of a publishing career they became successful authors uh today it's quite different than than that the process is quite different because publishers uh don't really publish uh in that middle space which is a very good was very good for authors because it allowed for a lot of creativity and career building um and so um you know they don't have the uh the the, the same level i think of uh uh, creative middle uh, space authors—they look for authors that are big authors. They're going to make them a lot of money. They're going to have, you know, national platform. They're going to have a lot of uh, um, uh, sales across, you know, the spectrum of ebooks and hardcovers and and, and mass market and trade paperback. So the uh, business has gotten a lot tougher for people who are creative, and it's gotten a lot tougher for publishers who need creative people in order to grow organically grow their, uh, their industry.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? It really, really has. I mean, I've, I've seen the differences as, as a reader in the, in the, you know, in the publishing industry, you know, you see books being marketed differently. Bookstores being in decline. There's been massive changes. And Mark, when you first started in the publishing world, it must have been about the time when, you know, technology was really
2: taking off for you. Ebooks, yeah, were just taking hold. Uh, Amazon had, you know, only released a couple of Kindle e readers at the time, and print was still very big, and publishers. Had really underestimated you know, the potential of, of ebooks. Uh, no one really knew where things would go in terms of whether they wanted a, a single-use device or a multi-use device. And uh, so a lot of publishers really just willingly gave their backlist over to you know Amazon and other e-publishers. And then just as I was starting in the industry, it was it was affecting you know the print market in such a way that it was it was actually causing printing plant closures, and some of the people in the art and production departments at um, Penguin Books. This is before they merged with Penguin Random House. They were um, they were kind of worried about you know what whether print would stay or not. Ultimately, it's it's pretty much here to stay, but um it, se- it seemed uncertain because the changes were happening so fast. Um, so no one really saw it coming people initially thought it was the the ebooks were just a means for amazon to sell its kindle devices whereas um it actually became something of a a meaningful business to to sell ebooks
0: yeah absolutely and there's so many platforms now that actually sell um you know ebooks i mean you've got apple um you've got barnes and noble amazon there's so many different platforms now that actually sell ebooks. It's, it's a massive, massive business. And I know I know one person who did know that it was going to be big, and that was you, Robert, because you straight away saw the market was going to change, and you set up, you know, your digital book
1: department.
2: I think you're you might be on mute there. You have to unmute yourself.
1: Okay, so um... There are really uh, two stories, you know, in the ebook space that are the main stories. One is is I'm a big proponent of ebooks because they allow for authors to publish, where uh, traditional publishers have such a high bar financially today, especially with their overhead and their expectations. They simply don't buy as many books as they once did. Yeah. So the ebook space has allowed authors to. Uh, uh, grow, you know, their businesses and to be published. Um, some of the books are wonderful. Some are okay. I have an author who writes uh, southern uh, you know, fiction, contemporary fiction. She makes, you know, it's last six months. She made one point three million dollars. Wow. So you know, and she's an original ebook author. She doesn't have a traditional publisher now. She wants to move into that space, and so we're working that out. Um, The other thing, of course, is that publishers initially uh, made a bad deal with Amazon where they way underpriced new books that they were publishing. They were publishing them at a higher, uh, you know, hardcover level Uh, price-wise. I think your dog's trying to get into your room, Mark. Um, Hold on one second. Mark, why don't you take over? I'll be right back. Excuse me. I'm sorry.
0: That's all right. We're dog-friendly on this show. Um, While Robert is is checking on the puppy, I'm going to introduce everybody to our new little addition. There we go, everybody. This is
2: Oliver,
0: our little cockapoo. Actually, we've already got two golden doodles, as Mark knows. Um, And I want to call it a -a cockadoodle, because I think having two golden doodles and a -a cockadoodle sounds quite cute. But this is Oliver, look. He's the cutest little thing, everybody. He is
2: gorgeous, look. Like a teddy bear.
0: I know he's got the cutest little. No, he's absolutely lovely. Um, Oh, you are gorgeous. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pop some comments up to to, so we can say hello to everybody who's joining us. Oh my gosh, we got so many people. Um, We've got Carla who's joined us. Hello, Carla. Um, I have to say, Carla is one of the uh, one of the authors of one of the best trilogies I have ever read. I could not put it down. It was brilliant. Um we've also got Peggy who's joined us, another author. She says hello from Michigan. So hello. Um, we've also got James. He says good afternoon, gentlemen, and thank you for being here again.
1: Sure, our pleasure. So That's would you it. like would you like me to finish the comment or you want to move on? Yes please. Yes please. Okay, very good. So in the so what publishers did, which was Uh, Harmful, in my opinion, to authors in uh, the early days of Amazon is they made a deal with Amazon where they could discount an author's book to $9.95 and pay the full retail price for the book that that the publisher was losing on each sale because they wanted to create a market for the Kindle.
0: So by doing...
1: What happened to authors as a result of that is consumers then had a built-in expectation that every new book that comes along should be nine ninety-five. Right.
0: So they so, set a precedent. Yeah.
1: So that set a precedent, and it was it's a hard one to get over, because you know if you go to a mall, you don't go to the retail store with no sale, right? You go to the one that has a sale, and exactly. you know which is normal behavior for a consumer. But that put a lot of pressure on pricing author's works and we all know that the royalty that an author gets is based on the retail price yeah so those those uh, uh the publishers who engaged in that behavior literally cut authors incomes by 50 percent by doing that
0: wow it, it's amazing isn't it, it and then the trend is carried on isn't it especially now that people are able to self-publish as well because self-published authors are selling their books at much less lower price just to get noticed. So of course that means you know published authors are then being forced to lower their prices to compete with the indie authors that are trying to get seen.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the problem with very low pricing is you can move a lot of books you know for $1.99 or, or for free if you're in the, that Amazon system. But the problem is if you want to move on beyond that to mainstream publishing, publishers look at those sales and say, look, you know, sure. They sold 50,000 copies, but were there a $1.99? We're not going to be able to do that at, you know, 22.95 or 24.95. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's the, the good part and the bad part, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And and it's, it's a shame because it affects everybody, everybody. It does. It does. And the unfortunate thing is, is if the owner of Amazon um, actually knew the blood, sweat and tears that went into writing novels <laughs> and the hours and months and years it takes to actually put your heart and soul into creating, you know, your, your novel, um, maybe he wouldn't have uh, been so quick as... Putting it on for su- yeah, such. A-
1: <laughs> I, I have to tell you, frankly, the way the, the people at the top of the companies today—another example—Bertelsmann will not, virtually under any circumstance, return the rights to an author for their books, even if the book is doing terribly, because wow. they, they view it as an asset on the books. So, so in in the days that we were talking about, when there was a. Scribner was a standalone company, uh, and uh, you had Dutton, a standalone company, and you had Dial, a standalone company. You know, publishers in, uh, th- in those companies, if the book wasn't doing well, they would say, sure, let's, uh, we'll return the rights to you. No problem, because yeah. they didn't view it as an asset on the books. Now, returning rights is very important. When I represented Dean Koontz, he'd written 30 books. That he got the rights back to under the name of Lee Nichols. Wow! And when I met with him at his home in California to talk about his next book, he told me about those books, and I said, "Well, De-, I said, well, you know, Dean, can you update those books?" He said, "Sure." I sold the entire thirty books to Ballantyne for two million dollars a book. Wow! Oh, and I couldn't have done that unless he had gotten the rights back. Yeah. But it, like I say, in those days. Uh, publishers, you know, really very much cared about the welfare of authors and they didn't, they weren't greedy and they didn't hold on to to things that they shouldn't be holding on to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Honestly, the your wealth of knowledge blows my mind, I've got to tell you. <laughs> it's just amazing. It really is. We've got more people joining in, so I'm going to pop them up so we can say hello to them um we've got scott who's joined us he says thank you for this information merry christmas to you scott um, we've also got rob Ekno, and he says um hello from los angeles hello rob nice to see you we've also got brian who's one of my bestest friends ever in the uk hello brian nice to see you darling happy holidays We've also got a new viewer called Candy Armstrong. Hello, Candy. And she says, hello from West Virginia. We're getting all over the place now. Honestly, it's, it's great. Um, we've also got, there we go. We've got Jay Zavaris. She, she says, hello and good afternoon. Um, oh, and she says, too cute about the puppy. it's oh, no. yeah, yeah. gorgeous. Thank you, oh. thank you. My heart was melting when I saw her. She's gorgeous. Um there we go. Amy says adorable. And Thank she's you. adorable. How old is she, by the way, Robert? Uh she's uh, approaching
1: five months.
0: Oh that's when they get their real little personalities, isn't it? It's so cute. And uh,
1: they you know, they they Mark found her for me, but they're very hard to find because there aren't a lot of breeders and they only do one litter a year. Interesting. Oh, she was well, I She's have to great. recommend them. They're like cats. They loved it. Last night, you know, I was laying, sitting on my chair doing work, and my dog is sitting on my lap for an hour sleeping. <laughs> oh, do you know what? I, I think people underestimate
0: how therapeutic pets are, especially dogs. Oh, because you've had a stressful day true. and you've been on the go all day and they want attention, they, they in a very nice way, they force you to just go, ah. Oh.
2: Is the yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, um, let's have a look, oh James says cute too, and we've also got David McCaffrey who's joined us, he says good evening Beth and gentlemen, good evening David, welcome and thank you for joining us, uh, we've got Josephine from the UK, she says hello, and we've also got Jackie Rom, um, she says hi, and Boy, Jackie,
1: Jackie's a friend of ours,
0: Oh, well, thank you for joining us, Jackie. We've also got Beth as well. She says, so excited to be here and ripped up by these super smart gentlemen. Thank you, Beth. Right,
1: that's very kind of you.
0: Very lovely. Um, and Brian says, evening, my lovely. Oh, he's so sweet. Typical from Portsmouth. Look, I can almost hear his accent as I said that. <laughs> and we've got Amy. Amy from, um, oh, there we go. She says, hello from Savannah. And um, let's have a look. Can Candy says, which is why my picture features my dog? Oh, us dog owners are the best ever. Um, so ladies and gentlemen who have joined us for our live Christmas show, if you've got any questions um, that you would like to ask Robert or Mark, please put them in the comments and I will pop them up for you. Now, Robert, I wanted to ask you about bookstores because obviously that's the one of the biggest things that's been affected in the book industry as well as for us as readers. Um, I mean when when you first went into the business in the you know in 1977 bookstores were everywhere you know you couldn't go to a town
1: without having a bookstore. Well,
2: has that,
0: has that been
1: heartbreaking for you? It, it's been challenging, very challenging for my authors and all authors and Mark's authors. When I uh, went to my first ABA, which is, you know, the American Booksellers Convention, that's what it was called in those days, I discovered a writer named Tom Clancy at the Naval Institute Press. Um, and he had written a book called The Hunt for October, it hadn't been published yet, so I was able to secure a set of galleys and reach out to him and and he agreed to become a client of mine. And uh, And for 17 years, we worked together. He passed away recently, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But the reason the Hunford October became a New York Times bestseller was specifically because of independent booksellers. It's because the chains at that time would not take a book that was so far afield from their normal uh, you know, distribution and chain of buying. And so um, independents were about 25,000 stores wow. at that time. Today, uh, they are under 2,000 stores in America. Now, there is a bit of a resurgence occurring. Yeah. Uh, store, some stores are starting to open again, with you know, COVID having, you know, uh, uh, you know, become less of an, you know, of an issue in the economy. Um, but that goes back to my discussion about mid authors. The independent bookstores were the place in the retail market that made a lot of very successful authors because they read the book. They loved the book. They ordered the book. They didn't do it based on their numbers. They did it based on their gut feeling and how much they, how much passion they had for the writer's work. And that era unfortunately is gone for the most part. Now, they may there may be a larger resurgence in independence, and independents do buy very differently than the big box stores, the wholesalers, you know, the uh, big chains. They buy very differently, whereas mm-hmm. it's all computerized in uh, you know Walmart, Barnes and Noble, uh, you know Costco. They just look at what the, the author sold the last book in the uh, in, in their electronic file system, and then they 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 order to net. They don't even order as many books as the author sold last time, They order to net, which means that uh, they, they come in at lower numbers, even though the author may have done okay for them. So it's a, it's very hard to build a, you know, build a career when you're, when you're faced with that. But those yes. are some of the major challenges. That's one reason. And I don't mean to brag, but I'm speaking factually, why it's important to be with a major agency. Yeah. Because, you know, we're able to, we go. Our business goes to the bottom line of Bertelsmann. No agency in the world does as much business with Bertelsmann as we do. So, when we look at their marketing plans, when we look at their media, their their, their publicity plans, we do an analysis of that with our you know uh, colleagues in the uh, uh, social digital department. Um, we're able to move the needle. An independent agent alone with virtually no business to speak of with Bertelsmann who sells a book there, um, they, that, that agent has to work with the editor and the editor, you know, is not going to go against company, you know, norma- normalcy as they, you know, in terms of how yeah. they do things. Uh, and it's going to be very limited in what the agent's capability is in terms of an analytical response to the marketing, publicity and promotion plans.
0: Yeah it's just, it's amazing it really is mark from, from from your point of view you've come into the publishing world just as facebook is kicking off instagram's kicked off tiktok now all these social media and i and i know you're all over social media it's so impressive how mm. on top of it you all are it's, it's brilliant have you noticed uh you know a, an increase recently of you know, the bookstagrammers, the um, people who want to hold physical books and they want to post about it and share it. Is that making a big difference now for you and your clients?
2: Yeah, I think some of the, it goes back to how some of the things have changed, you know, in the bookstore landscape. I was, just to talk about that for a minute, because I think it leads into this too. I was re-watching that Nora Ephron movie, um, You've Got Mail uh with meg Meg ryan and tom hanks and meg in the movie is an independent bookstore owner on the upper west side the man she meets um helps big chain bookstores like barnes and noble obviously it has a different name in the the, fox books yeah or something my favorite
0: movies and books
2: he helps them open locations and um so I could see that back then. Even then, it was like big fish eats the little one. And today, you know, whereas back then people were claiming that Borders, which is now closed, and Barnes and Noble were like the villains for eating up the business of independent bookstores, now they're heralded as heroes in the face of Amazon and online online book buying. And I think it's just sort of this natural ebb and flow of things. You know, if, it would be a lot more painful if people weren't reading as much. I think it's more so they're just reading in different ways, getting their books in different ways. And I think independent bookstores are still here and they're, they're here to stay because even though people walk into an independent bookstore and they might know they're paying a little bit more for an independent book they're buying there, they're kind of um, paying to have that experience of walking into a bookstore, seeing books around them, it's being very tactile. And, and
1: also having a relationship with a bookseller you know, yeah develop, which people yeah. which i enjoy as a book consumer i love going into you know an independent bookstore and talking to the manager or the owner about the books i like and you know what publishing is like and so forth so that relationship is very is very still very you know wonderful and valuable
2: yeah yeah i think it's gratifying to a lot of people and you know leading into what you asked about social media and how books are talked about on there i think Previously, everything was more so the water cooler effect or people talking about books in person at book clubs or church events and things like that. And with the advent of social media, people could go online more easily and share what they're reading. So it's not as though people are really doing it less of that. In fact, they can do more of it, but in different ways. They can take to TikTok. They can take to Instagram. They can talk about what book they're reading and, and enjoying and, and
1: you- And you also have celebrity book uh, clubs Oprah Winfrey Reese Witherspoon amongst many, many others. And, and those are a lot of fun. You hear people's likes and dislikes and, you know, what they're, uh, uh, you know, what they're um, uh, reading. Uh, And it's a nice variety of books that they choose. I wish they would do a little more nonfiction as well, but, you know, I think that they, you know, uh, their, their audience is probably by a lot of fiction. Um, and, uh, it's a, uh, uh, um, it's, you know, it's very different today than it, than it once was, but it's still about, you know, for the consumer, the reader, it's all about the book. It's always about the book. And I tell publishers that when they start giving people a hard time and I, and, you know, the, the contracts departments make, you know, ridiculous policies you know, I, I tell them, you know, then go publish a contract if, you, if, you don't, if you're going to give this author a hard time. You know, go yeah. publish a contract. See how much money you make from that. It's <laughs> crazy when you talk to them straight about that stuff. Because, you know, they're, authors have to live on what they earn. Yeah. If I, I said to a publisher recently, I said, you get paid biweekly. You know there's a paycheck coming in. Your mortgage is going to be paid. Your electric bill, your kid's college. I said, you know, authors don't have that kind of security. And so when you enact policies that peel away rights, that, that um, uh, make authors pay back money if a publisher for any reason, used to be an editorial reason, now it's any reason they can reject a book. So, uh, you know, as an agency, and Mark can talk more about this, um, you know, we're up against that every day with our authors standing behind us, believing that we're working hard for them and, and trusting in us and, and, and we appreciate their loyalty and love. Um, and, and, but, you know, you can only do that if you have a business that really impacts, you know, publishers. So you get their attention and you get them to do things outside of what they traditionally want to do with, you know, independent agents.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I'm sure you agree
2: with that, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you need a good agency behind you. It's a challenging um, marketplace, but, you know, we still make it work. I was going to say, Beth, there's some questions I noticed from some people, too, in the audience. Yeah. I don't know if we want to save them for later, but I saw beginning with David and some others. Um, there were some questions they had.
0: They have. They have. Let's put them on right now and try and get as many questions as we can done. Um, let's have a look. Okay. Okay, so Josevara Tavares says, as a veteran, I couldn't help but love that book, The Intrigue, with regards to The Hunt for Red October. I love that one. Um, oh, if Thank you can you. hear me windling, by the way, it's because I'm wearing my Christmas bells. <laughs> <laughs> Thought I'd get all Christmassy. Okay, and David says... Having received a number of rejections from literary agents when I was starting out as an author, I was wondering if a manuscript is always read or if you just receive a polite response that your story isn't their cup of tea after a cursory review.
2: It's hard to say because it, this really depends on who is the person on the receiving end of a query letter or a manuscript. You know, we can really only speak to what our experiences are like at Trident and what we tend to ask of our colleagues. You know, we like to get back to people in a timely manner. And in fact, when they submit a submission on our website or a query letter on our website, they get a, you know, receipt sent to them by email that we, we plan to get back to them within a certain time frame. And uh, usually if a query letter is of interest, you know, the agent will request the manuscript. And uh, I think they would do, I should, would hope that they, again, I can only speak to our experience, but, you know, do their diligence in reading the good, uh, a query letter, seeing that there's, you know, a good story there, and then looking at the manuscript and reading as far as their interest carries them into the manuscript.
1: And just, and just quickly, you know, agents, all agents have, uh, you know, their likes and dislikes. Yes. Um, as an author, don't stop writing and don't stop trying. Uh, you know, uh, the there are authors that I've represented over the years who struggled for many, many years and ultimately were published and became successful. Um, so agents, like publishers, uh, have their likes and dislikes and uh, their capabilities and the lack of capability. So it's hard to be rejected. But at the same time, you have to keep writing and keep trying uh, and coming up with new books. I will say that in today's market, uh, the, I, in commercial fiction, not literary fiction, but in commercial fiction, the idea for the book is central. If the idea is not one that has residence, it has uh, you know, an impact, then the likelihood is the agent's not going to ask for the manuscript. Yeah. The other thing you have to make sure of when you do have a manuscript you're submitting is make that first third of the book incredible because that's where you get your main reads in the first third of the book.
0: Yeah, and don't, and wait, a,
1: don't wait for the middle and don't wait for the last you know third.
0: Yeah, and and like we've we've mentioned in our previous shows, it also depends on other things that some authors don't think about. So you know if if a if an agent is literally just about to release a a story that's of a similar genre or, you know, it's similar type of trope, they might love your story, but it might not be the right time for that agent because they've just picked something up. And by the
1: way, same for publishers. Publishers, you know, just because they publish a book very successfully, you know, a certain genre, a category, you go back, you go to them with a book that's very much like it, you know, and oftentimes they'll say, you know, uh, you know, it's gonna compete with that, you know, the other book and that we've already done that book and we want some fresh ideas. Mm. So it's yeah. very hard because authors, you know, will look at what's working in the marketplace and try. many of them will try to, you know, uh, work the, the material in such a way to try to look at the, the trend line. Sometimes that works, but oftentimes, you know, you wanna write the book that sets a trend. For instance, Wonder by R.J. Placchio, first novel, you know, turned down all over New York, sold for a handful of dollars. Uh twelve years later, you know, five million copies sold and four in fifty-four countries published it.
2: Because Amazing. one
1: publisher saw it and liked it and published it. Yeah. And that's that's you know, that's really part of what makes publishing exciting as well, because you never know what you're gonna find. You never know what's gonna happen. You don't. And also, I mean, you were Mark Mark, you, you you two
0: are both very unique, really, because you read all your submissions, whereas many, many literary agents out there rely on their assistants. So you're querying a lot of the times to the literary agent's assistant, not directly to the literary agent. So it sometimes it depends on whether their assistant likes your story or not and passes it on to the... Their boss, their literary, the literary agent, or, or
1: another agent in the company. Exactly. So, so there's so many variables, isn't there? There is. There is. Yeah. Mark, do you want to speak to that a little?
2: Yeah, I was going to say, um, you know, some agents may even look only at, you know, work that's been referred to them. You know, really, it's an individual thing and it's a subjective thing. I was going to say, shall we look at some of the other comments? There are probably a lot of other. There are,
0: there are, we've, we've got um, Lisa who's joined us and she says, hello to all. Hello, 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 hello. Um, okay. So Candy is a new viewer. Um, and she says, how do you get an agent to read your manuscript?
1: I think to, well, you go ahead, go ahead. Write a great book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's also, I mean, you can have the best. I was going to turn the
1: light on. Excuse me one
0: second. No worries, you can have the best novel going, can't you? But if you don't sell your story in a query letter, yes, then you can sabotage yourself because you it's it's not just saying, Please, can you represent me? Um, I've written this great book. You need to sell your story, you need to have a for, for, this is from my experience because I've learned the hard way. Well,
1: um, well, you know, Mark, Mark, Mark is the genius in you understanding know. the submission email or a letter. I mean, I've seen the work he's done and how he explains things to authors and, uh, you know, and and in these podcasts and chats that he has. So Mark, why do not you speak to that a little?
2: Just very quickly, you know, because it, um, but basically I think a good query letter all fits on one page, you know, the book up front, some comps and a couple uh, paragraphs detailing, you know, the plot details of the book. And then the last paragraph is best left up to, you know, a short author bio, of relevant writing experience and credentials. But, yeah, that's the tricky thing. You need to not have only written a really good manuscript, but also be able to speak about your work in a concise and really interesting way to, you know, entice us to read the manuscript. So because he,
1: because in all fairness, we see a lot of material coming in a lot, a lot. I can't even and, imagine how much. And, and so. You know, uh, you want to give authors, you know, the best shot you can, but it's very helpful when you see a uh, a submission letter or email um, that can really uh, tweak your interest.
2: I was going to say, too, I saw there's a question from AJ that seems like an interesting one. Um, yes. In regard to word count, which kind of
0: it's, per- it's
2: pertinent to this, too.
0: It is. He says, what is the hard limit minimum for novel word counts? I've heard 50K. I've also heard 80K. Now, this is a bit fluid as well, depending on genre, etc., cetera, and, and other well, as well, isn't it?
2: There are a lot of considerations that go into that. For instance, um, you know, I would really say for fiction, the range for commercially viable fiction tends. The sweet spot is really, maybe, roughly around eighty to ninety thousand words. Even with that said, normal book length tends to range between eighty and. And it can
1: be, and it can be longer for literary works.
2: Sure, yeah. but yeah. Uh, having a shorter book creates some like some difficulties for the publisher and for the agent in getting it sold because publishers price their books according to page count, you know, word count, page count. Because and,
1: it's because of cost of production and manufacturing.
2: So a shorter book will result in a lower price tag, which means a smaller margin for profit for the publisher. So in order for them to really make their numbers work, they need to sell a lot of books. So, if you,
1: so let's say it's 80 and you come in at 100,000. That's not bad because you can be edited. You can edit what you need to edit to get to the point where you hit that sweet spot.
0: Yeah. And, and Mark, you've had a situation where you had a query for a book. I remember we spoke about it on a, on a, one of our previous shows, and that you loved the book, but it was ginormous uh, to the author and you managed to to sort of separate it into separate books if I remember rightly. That's well, right to
1: say Mark is unique in that respect most <laughs> a lot of agents, and I must you know i'm 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 you know speaking from knowledge they're lazy <laughs> they're lazy. And so, you know, a book comes in like that, it's easy to say no to, not because you got to do a lot of work. So Mark, now back to you.
2: Yeah, no, I, I saw the potential in the book, but it was the opposite problem of having a short book. When you have a book that's very far in excess of 120,000 words, the price tag on the book goes up. And what happens with that is, whereas there's a bigger margin for profit, you know, you kind of go outside of a normal price range on a book and you begin, you know, that old adage, you Lose a customer for every dollar, a book goes up in price. So um, that's part of the challenge. And then the publisher's cost of shipping, warehousing, manufacturing goes up. And it also makes it a little dip, more difficult to record an audio, longer studio hours. But Mark, you've and, done a
1: lot, but you do a lot of editorial work with your
2: authors. Well, right. So with that book, what we did was that was an 800,000 word manuscript. And it was an epic fantasy. And I had to say to the author... There could be six or eight books here. And so we chopped it up actually into three books and we pared it down, which is, believe it or not, it's much easier to, to shave muscle off of bone than it is to add muscle to bone in, in most cases. So we were able to do it in that instance. But you're right. Most people would get a submission. They would see it was an outrageous word count. And a lot of so people would reject it. it on the basis. They reject it.
1: They would reject it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's so it's- that's why the email would... One description- One moment. That's why the email with the description of the book, um, and the uh, uh, presentation, it's very important because you want to be able to convince that uh, uh, age that uh, uh, agent that this is worth looking at and taking on. Yeah, yeah. Mark will be back in a minute. I think there was some, something happened with his phone. No,
2: so-
0: no worries. No worries. Um, I'm going to give you another question, Robert. If that's all right. Sure. So Peggy says. Do you read past the query letter and, and, I, and I can understand her why she asked this because some agents don't read the query letter, go straight to the manuscript, other agents read the query letter first and then decide to read the manuscript. so there, there are lots of different agents who do different things so so would you read past the query letter and well, what if, make- if the
1: query letter convinced me that I should read the book? I can't read. It's impossible for any agent or company to read every book that comes in for on submission. Yes. So you do have to pick and choose. Now, every agent has her likes and dislikes. We have Ellen Levine, who represents Marlon James. Uh, She represents Michael Andachi, who wrote The English Patient, Russell Banks. So she has very specific tastes and likes. Um, and so if someone submitted to her a commercial novel, um the likelihood is she wouldn't read past that the submission letter. Yeah. So it, so so it really yeah, it really depends on the agent's um interests and tastes.
0: And I think also, and especially this is important for our new viewers, what a lot of authors, and we've touched on this before, Mark, haven't we? Your query letter is your first impression. So if your query letter isn't as spot on as your novel, you could really sabotage yourself. So just by doing grammatical errors or, you know, not sounding professional and yet intriguing, you have to be really, really thorough with your query letter because.
1: Yes, and and my suggestion is, you know, don't make it a buddy-buddy query letter. I get those. And, you know, I'm very turned off by it because I'm a professional. I treat people always professionally with respect. Uh, And I like to get a letter, a a submission that is of a professional standard. And then I can make a better, you know, and it's better for the author because I'll pay more attention to it. And uh, I will also, um, uh, you know, be, you know, more likely to be intrigued by it.
0: Yeah, I mean it sets the right impression, doesn't it, Mark? If if you get a query letter, and as Robert said, it you know, it's it's sounds professional, it's intriguing, it's it's got no errors, that's gonna give you a great impression of that author and what that author could possibly be like to work with.
2: Yeah, it's our first insight into the book. You know, I always liken it to going to the restaurant. The waiter tells you what's on the menu. A really good waiter, when they're sharing the specials, they describe the food to you, they entice you to order the dish. You know, a waiter who is not that good a salesperson would probably just simply tell you what the specials are, not describe them, and then you don't feel so compelled to order whatever the specials are. So yeah, it's really it's important. It's kind of like or even a a painting in a museum. On the right-hand side, there's a paragraph that describes what the painting is about. You know, that being well-written helps us understand what the work is about. Um, yeah. I saw some other questions uh, here, too, from Jay-Z and others.
0: We are. We're getting lots. I'm going to do a quick fire session, if that's all right, because we're we're getting close to an hour. It goes so quick, it's ridiculous. Um, there we go. So we've got a question for you now. It says, independent bookstore owners and employees tend to be more knowledgeable about authors, genres, and so on. Plus, they are so much fun. I would
1: agree with that. That's, that's completely accurate, truthful, factual, and yeah. I'm all for it. <laughs> <And I've laughs> because I end. want the people who are selling my author's books to the public to exactly. love them, to enjoy them, to have read them, and really, at the bottom line, care about them.
0: Exactly. And I've got to say, and I don't, I, and I'm not ashamed to say it, I am a certified book sniffer, a I love the smell of a new book. That's, it's like opening a, the, the, you know, a, a fresh tin of coffee, isn't it? That yeah. smell from a new book. I love it. I love it. You can't get that with a Kindle. I'm just saying. No. Okay. no. <laughs> so, Candy says, what will catch their eye in a query letter?
2: two things. I I think it's very simple if you boil it down. One, a well-written query letter, because that's our first insight into what the quality of the writing in the manuscript might be like. And then two, you know, the meat and potatoes of the story. It's got to sound like a really great concept or an exciting plot. You know, that is, you know, basically what the story is about and how well-written it is. That's what I think convinces people to read past the query letter.
0: Yeah. Sometimes a a great hook can be enough to really spark an interest. I mean, that's, I I always say to my clients, look at movie trailers, see what movie trailers are like, because each movie trailer, for example, Avatar, they always have such a great hook and then
1: draw you in. The other thing, the other thing about querying an agent is, and this is up to each individual author is if you submit to Trident, your book, and you say to the agent, I'm submitting this simultaneously to other agents, oftentimes an agent of Trident will pass on the book because there's only so much time for us to read uh, new authors and new authors' queries and, and represent debut authors. And if you're re- if you read the book and you love the book and you want to represent it, but then three other agents are offering representation for the book, um, and you know, because it's agent uh, interest doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a big book or it's going to be a big advance. It just means that they they, they like the writer, they think it has the book has potential. Um, but the when you when Trident reads a book, we put a lot of time into what we're doing. We yes. don't, for instance, we may show it to our foreign rights department. We want to find out if, there, if the book has potential for international sales. Most publishers, agents we deal with, don't have a foreign rights department other than one agent who works with sub-agents around the world. We sell direct around the world in major markets. So oftentimes, we'll talk to uh, the foreign rights department. We'll talk to the social media department. So a lot of work and time goes into the evaluation. And if we do all that and, and the book, you know, we end up losing the book to, you know, uh, an independent Asian somewhere, uh, it's not a good use of our time.
0: That's it. I mean, it's time is money, isn't it? And you've got such limited time per day to, to get through as many as possible. I, I can't even imagine your workload. I really, really can't. It blows my mind. Um, let's have a look. let see if we've got some more comments. Okay. Okay. Um, Okay, she says, "How weird is it that an author can move more signed copies yet can barely move their eBooks online?" It, it, it depends. I mean, I, about-
2: um, yeah, I think that's an individual experience, right? Yeah. Um, some people can can do very well online, given how they market and promote their books. Like, um, you know, for instance, with the witty writers show, I see. The show pops up on Spotify and other podcast places and YouTube and various social media channels. But
1: if we were just doing
2: this one place in person, it wouldn't have the same kind of reach. And then perhaps it depends on the author and the book. But some people maybe do better in an in-person setting you know, and can appeal to people on a more personal level in hand selling their book than they do online. So it's maybe more of an individual thing.
0: Yeah, and on the plus side, you know, you do tend to earn more on paperbacks um, and hard copies, um, so I, I would say that's a success. Yeah, that's <laughs> to be right. honest if you, I'd be like, yes. <laughs> okay, um, Anna says, very interesting, so she's loving our conversation, and we've got Candy with a question. What genres are you gentlemen interested in? or what genre is
1: hot right now? That's a very good question. Well, for me, uh, I'm interested. I do primarily commercial fiction with some upmarket nonfiction, but not a lot. I've always had uh, great success in the commercial fiction arena representing at times Janet Ivanovich, Dean Koontz, Tom Clancy, Catherine Coulter, um, and others, but I ha- and I have one really fantastic spiritual and health writer named Deepak Chopra, which we have been together for thirty years, and we just were great friends, and we love working together. Um, so you know, though, though, that's primarily my interest. I also like you know upmarket history, but um, primarily commercial fiction. I think Mark has actually a more eclectic list than I do.
0: I, you know, I must admit, I've I've seen your your roster, and wow, it's very impressive, Mark
2: there's a big range there. I figured, whereas I think a lot of agents want to come to be known as, okay, that's the de facto agent I go to if I wrote a science fiction book or a women's fiction book, I figured authors would come to know me by my brand of representation and varied interests. So I've worked across fiction, nonfiction, children's books, graphic novels, and usually, um, upmarket fiction and and more so platform driven fiction some books with some commercial sensibility to them um but that's kind of the only unifying theme among them i don't really like to limit myself if i see promise in a work and if it's of interest i i like to work with the author so i just keep a very open mind
0: if it's a good book it's a good book correct exactly that's the best way to be best way to be okay so we've got um claire who's joined us claire says so lovely to hear from you all this is super helpful to hear oh there we go our pleasure i I love comments like that honestly you you guys make such a big difference to so many people you really do let's have a look so amy says what are a few writers conferences you can all recommend for yet to be published authors And Mark and Robert, do you go to writers' conferences and how often?
2: Um, So there are a lot of good conferences and workshops. But since the question is about conferences, you know, I think some of the biggest known ones are there's the Writers' Digest Conference in New York. Uh, There's also on the West Coast, there's the San Francisco Writers' Conference. And then in the Midwest, you know, a really good one, I would say, is the Writers League of Texas as conferences. I used to go to a lot of conferences. It was those I would go one or two a month. And then I think it's just very easy to get tired and doing something like that. And um, sometimes something comes about that's good once in a while from that. But attending the conferences, it's a lot more about networking, getting to know the industry better, uh, from our standpoint, it's probably more so about giving back and sh- like here on this podcast, sharing knowledge nice. and information um, where I've found, you know, it to be more worthwhile to devote attention is uh, like a lot of our colleagues attend very prestigious writers' workshops like the Iowa Writers' Workshop. The uh, There's Bread Loaf. Um, I've been to... Uh, NYU has a creative writing uh, workshop. And then every year I go to the Yale Writers Workshop because my um, client, Jothan Borello is the director of that workshop. So you have, a, and they don't, um, it's not it, like, um, like for instance, at the New York Pitch Fest at Writers Digest, it's like a bell rings every five minutes and someone sits in front of you and it, it's like speed dating. Yeah. And by the that end of the day-
1: The Maui Writers Conference is very similar where you sit in a room yeah. and just pitching ideas at you. And you know, it's uh I yeah. I, I, ha, I I don't love that. <laughs> I'd rather, you know, get a lovely query letter and be able to think about it and digest it in yeah. time and not, you know, have three minutes. It's like it's like speed dating an author. I mean, it's <laughs> where these people come up with these ideas are amazing to me.
2: It's probably really good for the writers to be practicing their pitching in that way, but I think by the end of the day, as an agent, you need an Advil, you know, and so <laughs> But with these workshops, like, for instance, the Yale Writers Workshop, they'll only put maybe five people in front of you, and those are writers who the workshop feels, that yeah. they themselves feel those writers are ready to go before an agent.
0: That's amazing. I, I suppose it's basically just my favourite word, researching. Um, you know, it's just researching what's what sort of thing would be mo- most suitable for your genre, what type of thing you write, your your comfort level, um it, again
1: it's all all down to variables isn't it but as you said it you know something it's very unpredictable some people will say you know read what's working try to find a way in uh but then again uh a lot of books that are written aren't about what's working <laughs> yeah. and are unexpected you know and and uh uh it's part it's all it's part of the creative process which makes working with writers very very interesting and and uh, and, and enjoyable, um, yeah. but you know, there, in the you know, like the Wharton Business School, you know, you'll learn that these are the systems, these are the way things work, these are what, you know, if you do this, you can expect that. But with authors and publishing and writing and creativity, you can throw all that out the window. That's why, by the way, I've never, I can tell you, in my career as a, in my management positions, I've never hired anyone from an Ivy League school. Yeah because they are um, too fixed in their wheelhouses, having uh, you know gone through you know, school in a certain way with certain expectations, a certain process built in. Uh, it's not to say that they're not smart people, good people and you know, well educated, but you know our industry on the agent side really requires kind of a unique thinker and personality that yeah. schools simply don't teach you. you, you know that's one reason. That uh, William Morris was so successful over the years because of the training program.
0: Yeah. I it's think they should I think more companies should do that. I think they should bring back apprenticeships. <laughs> it was much more I
1: useful. St- I started as a secretary. Yeah. Uh, not an assistant. <laughs> yeah. and, and I worked my way up to the board of directors. But yeah. um, uh, and a trident, most of the agents that are trident are organic, people who have come up through the system that we've trained in the Trident way with Trident, you know, Trident responsibilities, uh, and we've gotten some very good results. We have Alexa Stark, was one of the finest young agents in the industry for, for mostly literary fiction, and, and early on in her career, many of her clients became New York Times hardcover bestsellers, but she was an assistant at Trident, working for Ellen Levine for four or five years before she got her shot.
0: Wow, it's just amazing. It really is. I've got one more question for you before we finish. And for those of you who have asked questions, but we haven't answered yet, don't worry. Because if I can talk Mark and Robert coming back on the show, (laughs) I I can make a list of them and we can get them next time. So don't panic if we haven't answered you yet. But Jane asks, how well do UK authors books work in the US? That is an awesome question. Mark, you first.
2: Well, I think a good example is that you could look at J.K. Rowling, who wrote Harry Potter. She's a U.K. author. You know, if Harry Potter had only published primarily in the U.K., that's a sliver of the English language book market compared to the English language in the U.S. and then throughout the world. Uh, The bulk of readers in the English language tend to be in the U.S., I think in part because book publishing is primarily situated in new york i mean there are publishers throughout the world but really primarily in new york the same way that hollywood for the film and tv it
1: also let me just jump in mark it also depends on the genre slash category of the book so commercial fiction travels back and forth between the two countries very well except for uh You know uh summer fiction in charleston i mean that's not you know gonna you know be attractive to the british and you know vacationing in plymouth is not going to you know be attractive to americans but by and large the it's kind of like the film industry our film industry travels around the world so as are as do books from the united states and there are many wonderful frederick forsyth you know uh you know uh one of the great thriller writers of uh you know the 20th century and that's uh, 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 no, I'm not, uh, the Day of the Jackal, if I'm thinking of his, his name is Forsyth, I think. Um, but, you know, uh, literary fiction travels very well between the UK and the US, high level yeah. literary fiction. Marlon James, who wrote The Seven Killings, uh, The Murder of uh, uh, Marley, uh, you know, uh, is published in over 50 countries. And... Very successfully, UK number one London Times best selling author. But it's, it's high literary fiction.
0: Yeah, yeah. Isn't it amazing? It really is. We are uh, sadly, we have run out of time. I, I swear we, I could literally talk to you both for hours because you're so knowledgeable and fascinating. Well, let me
1: just say in ending it's a blessing to work with authors, it's a wonderful career. I recommend it to anybody who's interested in in uh you know working and living with the authors and it's uh every book is a gateway into a new world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Amen to that. I love it. Thank you so much, Robert and Mark, for joining us today for our Christmas special. Our
1: pleasure. Uh, you happy, are Merry hope- Christmas and have a happy new year.
0: Thank yes. you, darling. And thank you everybody for joining us. And hopefully we'll be able to get them both back on soon.
1: I'll have to mark- thank you so much for inviting us.
0: I might have to bribe them with some mince pies from
1: England. <laughs> oh,
0: I'm not talking my language. <laughs> happy holidays to you both. Happy holidays. Thank you.
1: Thank, you. Thank okay. you,
0: everyone, for joining us. And hopefully I'll, we'll see you again for the next Witty Writers Show. But happy holidays, everybody. And I will be making notes of all your questions. So have a great time. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And we'll see you soon on the next Witty Writers
2: Show. Thank Bye you. Bye for now, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.